Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our text for our sermon is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 through 12. After his soul experiences anguish, he will see the light of life. He will provide satisfaction. Through their knowledge of him, my just servant will justify the many, for he himself carried their guilt. Therefore, I will give him an allotment among the great, and with the strong he will share plunder, because he poured out his life to death, and he let himself be counted with rebellious sinners. He himself carried the sins of many, and he intercedes for the rebels. This is the word of our Lord. Traditionally, uh, the, the gospel lesson for the Sunday after Easter is when the disciples have gathered in the upper room. This is more than likely the very room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper while celebrating the Passover feast. The very night he would be betrayed. But it's probably that room. But they meet together on Sunday. They've heard the report from the women that he's risen. John and Peter have seen the empty tomb. He's appeared to the Emmaus disciples and then suddenly, we'll say, apparates into the room and he lets them see that he is risen. But the apostle Thomas was not there. And when they report to Thomas, Thomas says, basically, unless I can use the scientific method, unless I get to stick my finger right into those nail holes and and right into the side where the spear pierced him, I will not believe it. Imagine if that was the end of the story. Well, would that be like for Thomas? What would that mean for you and I to just have that recorded? And lest that happens, I won't believe it. And that was the end of the story. Well, praise the Lord, it's not the end of the story. And our sermon text for today really concludes that long series we've been through that started way back on Ash Wednesday in Lent on the suffering servant of the Lord that started at Isaiah 52, verse 13. And today, for one last time, we'll ask that question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? But unlike the times we were asking it until last sermon, we rejoice because we know he's risen. So let's jump into answering that question. We're told, uh, my own translation of the Hebrew poetry is, because of the toil-filled labor of his very existence, he will see, he will be satisfied. Doesn't make a lot of sense in English, does it? Some people, as our translation did see, uh, add the word, the light of life based on another manuscript. Others point back that uh, this was also stated in verse 10 and that, that he will see seed, that he will, uh, as we covered in last week's sermon, that, that you know, he will die, rise again. But then you and I, when we're brought to faith, we're literally engrafted to him as a branch is to the vine. And, and, and we get to share the good news with others who are then brought to faith, brought to life in Christ. But isn't it interesting, the Hebrew word used there, because of the toil-filled labor of his very existence. Toil-filled labor, that's again, we're reminded the flogging he took with, with all of that skin being flayed off of his back, with being nailed to the cross. But you know, he had toil that whole entire time. You, you look at the preaching schedule he, he kept up uh, right up until the day he was pretty much crucified in that. Jesus worked very hard to save us. 
It was not that he just did something really easy, no big deal. I mean, he is true God who became true man. And that Hebrew word for soul, nephesh, I translate as very existence. Because people can, get, can misunderstand. They can think that, for example, that he's true God. And, and so his soul was God who took on a human body as if like he was putting on a pair of coveralls or something. He is 100% man, 100% true God. And so... It, there, it's his very existence. It's the package deal. The package deal was used in a toilsome labor. He had to be both man to be our substitute, man to die, and true God, that it would mean something. And yet we're told here that wonderful news. He will see. He will see seed. He will see the light of life. He will be satisfied. And that word that, we tra- that I translate as satisfied is kind of like when you come to the table hungry, but you don't just eat until you're nourished. You eat until you're full. It's like coming to the table hungry, but it's the Thanksgiving feast or the Easter feast or the Christmas feast. What is he filled with? What is the the seed that's so wonderful? That really is answered in the next part of the Hebrew poetry of verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will cause the event of being righteous for the many. Now, I translate that hiffle conjugation, cause the event of being righteous for many. Really, in simple English, we translate this as justify. It's a courtroom term. I have, uh, when I take younger students through Bible instruction class and, and we cover that courtroom term in God's courtroom, I have them memorize the definition for being justified that because, even though I am guilty of all of my sins because of Christ, taking the punishment in my place and rising, it's justified, never sinned at all. That's the point of his toil-filled existence. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that's the servant of the Lord, will justify or cause justification for the many. Now, who are the many? In the Hebrew poetry, one could say, this is definitely the world. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's only one thing that damns a person to hell, and that's being indifferent or rejecting it. We embrace it by faith that is a gift from God. And so we could say the many are clearly all those who ever have come and ever will come into faith But truly, there's no reason for somebody to go to hell. Here we are saying that God has justified you. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He suffered so that you would be justified in his courtroom. He's your attorney. And when you stand up in God's courtroom, he says, I took the punishment for this one. There's no punishment to dole out. You have been justified. It's just, as I said, it's justified, never sinned. So it's just if you'd never sinned. And we want to recall back at that very first verse because where it says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will cause the event of being righteous for many. But recall way back at at Isaiah 52, verse 13, where the suffering servant uh, text begins, we're told, pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. He's true God. This whole plan was made before God said, let there be light, before he himself said, let there be light, before he took on human flesh. He has the knowledge to justify you. And if we look at the last part of verse 11, we're told, 
And their distortions he himself has carried away. Now, throughout this suffering servant section, we've constantly seen two words used for sin. There's really three big words used in the Old Testament for sin, but two of those three ones get used. The one that doesn't get used is the most generic word for sin. But the word used here I translated as distortion. We covered that's when we take God's will, we know what it is, but we twist it to serve our own needs, to soothe our conscience. It's our sinful nature's way of trying to get slide one underneath our new person. And what is it that he does? Well, take, for example, the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So we twist God's will. I just got some juicy gossip on my neighbor and they've hurt my feelings. And after all, it's probably true. I'm confident it is. Never mind that it's harming their good reputation. So we twist God's will so we can slide it past our new person. But what are we told? And their distortions he himself has carried away. Think of Christ carrying that cross, the very thing he's going to be nailed to. Now, he stumbled underneath that cross because he wasn't using all the powers of his godhood. And truly, you have all the skin flayed off your back and see how long you can carry it. He did a pretty good job. But think of him when he's carrying that cross. He's carrying your sins to Golgotha so that he can wash them away in his blood. He's carrying them off. So now when God looks at Christ, he sees your sins have been punished in full. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. You've been justified. You've been declared not guilty of your sins. You've been given Christ's righteousness. And if he's carried your sins away, your new person is righteous. It's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness given to you. It's implanted into you with that new person who's engrafted into Christ. This is the culminating answer to this text. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To make you righteous. Not the world's idea of righteousness. That doesn't matter. The Holy God who is truly righteous. His righteousness giving you his own righteousness. Our text continues as we part the second part of this sermon. In verse 12 we're told Therefore, I will give a portion to him among the many, yet he will divide up the mighty as plunder. A lot of Isaiah is, uh, Isaiah's prophecies are the fact that Israel has been unfaithful to the Lord generation after generation. He's had enough. And he's saying, I will let the, there's going to be people who come. I'm going to lift my hand to protection. And you know what happened when uh, an invading army came? Do you know, lots of times until they invaded the king that they worked under, he made sure they were fed. But do you know where the bulk of their pay often came in those days? Once they conquered a city, once they conquered a country, whatever plunder they got, they took the citizens' property. They had defeated them. And so here we got this picture of Jesus coming in and fighting an enemy and then taking. This is now mine because I beat you. And what was the enemy that he beat? Sin, death, and the devil. Death is the consequence of Adam and Eve falling into sin and your and my being sinners. And because we're sinners, we're slaves to the devil. So he kicked the devil's door down, bashed his teeth in, left him chained up in a pool of his blood. And he grabbed you and said, I'm going to make you a precious treasure. Now, before that gets to our egos, we have to recognize that it wasn't like you and I were a diamond sitting out there in the rough. He had to make us beautiful diamonds. By justifying us. It's why I covered that first. But here you're his plunder. He went to war for you. To make you 
beautiful plunder to make you a treasure. Hate to talk to, to you as if you're about you, as if you're an inanimate object. You're not, you mean so much more. Because when he makes you his treasure, you're part of his bride, the invisible church. You're God's son and daughter. And so we're told in the next part of verse 12, because he exposed his very existence to death and he allowed himself to be counted with the rebels. Once again, his whole entire life, he took on human life, not using all the powers of his godhood, although he's fully God, so that he could make you his plunder. This is how he would defeat the devil. And think about how the devil thought he was defeating Jesus, getting the God man out of the way. There he is lying in the tomb. And then imagine the tomb is empty. Jesus' victory parade in hell. You're defeated. Now this person is my plunder. They're my treasure. They're no longer your slave. I have put my Holy Spirit in their heart so they have a new person that's literally engrafted to me. And we saw, and he allowed himself to be counted with the rebels. Now, what were the charges that Jesus was crucified for? We already see, and we covered on Good Friday, that he's, char- that, that he's crucified with criminals. And even after he's died and put in the grave, which we know is going to be empty, it's what we're rejoicing over, they still treat him like a criminal. But the charges were Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate had no backbone to stand up at that time. So even the Gentiles are involved in his death. The whole world's guilty. It's your sins that put him there. And, and, and so he, he dies in your place as if he's a rebel. But really, the charges would be the Roman government is, well, if he's the king of the Jews and we haven't sanctioned this, then the, the charges would be a soft rebellion. So we see, and he allowed himself to be counted with the rebels. He dies with the criminals, but really he puts your sins on him. And we've got to remember that. We're going to get into that here in just a minute, the next word that's used for sin. But we're told, and he lifted up the sin of many. Again, he, he picks up your sin and my sin. Really, he picked up the sin of the world, but people foolishly reject that. But you and I have not done that. He picks up your sin and he carries it away. It's gone. Now, sometimes we suffer the consequences. We sin against somebody and we hurt their feelings. And sometimes we go, oh, I wish I could take that back. And maybe they're so hurt they won't even talk to us. How can we make amends? Christ carried the sin away. Sometimes we got to pray, Lord, soften their hearts so I can assure them of my repentance. But isn't it nice? Well, we can suffer, uh, shall we say, in certain aspects, a discipline so that we don't do it again, our sins We're not going to suffer the eternal consequence. He's carried them away. And he has that way of of with his blood cleaning those up and bringing that person we sinned against if they weren't a believer into the faith so that so that they can assure us that they, too, have forgiven us or we can assure them that we have repented. And so he lifted up the sin of many that he took away the sins of the world. But for you, you're the many because you have faith. He's carried your sin away, making you again with no sin. You're now righteous. Now you're a precious treasure. Now you're part of the body that is the bride of Christ. And our text ends, we're told the end of verse 12, and he made intercession for the rebels. The word used for sin here is rebel. Again, we've got to remember every time that we sin against God, we're rebelling against God. If you break the 10th commandment and you're coveting something of your neighbors, you're breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods because you're saying, God, you haven't provided good enough for me. Every sin is a rebellion against God. That's our sinful nature, getting a sucker punch in on our new man. And so he made intercession. 
If you rebelled against our government and got arrested, you would be provided a lawyer. In the courtroom, that lawyer would intercede for you. We even say he who represents himself in court has a fool for an attorney. attorney. Christ is your lawyer. He's your attorney. But the system's rigged. See, in God's courtroom, this works. He's also your judge. We know Christ is the judge at the last day. How would you like it if you were guilty of all could be as a sin? Now, we don't want to make it a heinous crime, although uh, uh, sinning against God, rebelling against him makes us worthy of eternal damnation. And you have an attorney. The attorney says, you know what? You're going to be okay. Don't even lose a minute's sleep over this because I know who the judge is. It's me. Would you feel a sense of relief? Now, that doesn't mean we run out and intentionally rebel against God. Like I said, this is our sinful nature getting its sucker punches in. Our new man fights against it. So our sinful nature finds ways to be tricky and get those in. So our new man doesn't sin. Our sinful nature does. It's sin living in us, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. But he makes intercession for you. And when that sinful nature gets that sucker punch in, he turns to the father and says, I died for that sin too. And the father says, what sin are you talking about? All I see is your blood on that person. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To make you his reward. He has literally plundered you away from the devil, making you a treasure. So, began this sermon saying, can you imagine if that was the end? Thomas just saying, unless I get to stick my fingers in those holes I won't, and, and, and in his side, I won't believe. Imagine how awful that would be if that was where the whole story ended. But it's not, is it? In fact, I would argue that Thomas is using the scientific method. That I wouldn't argue. But I would argue you're a fool not to believe that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died and even rose. Let me explain there is so much historical, and very few things actually survive antiquity. But when you look at the Josephus, a Jewish priest who was not a Christian, what he records, when you look at the things recorded in the Roman Empire, they find stones that have Pontius Pilate's name on them, and all that evidence, you would actually have to have foolishly a confirmation bias to not accept the historical fact that there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, you would have to be a fool because the evidence exists that there was an apostle Peter and Paul and, and John. There's just too much evidence of the apostles. And the truth of the matter is, with the exception of John, they all end up dying martyrs' deaths. The Roman government persecuting most of them. And all they had to do was deny that they had seen this resurrected Lord. They had ran that day in fear for their lives, and yet they would give up their lives afterwards rather than deny that they had seen Christ risen. That makes them either lunatics or they were absolutely convinced. Now, a person could argue, well, maybe he didn't really die. Yet you have the skin ripped off your back. You be nailed to a cross. You have a spear stabs through your side, which would pierce several vital organs, including the heart and lungs and liver. But all all that aside, a person could argue, well, maybe he just, they hadn't kind of done the job and he rose. He probably wouldn't be walking after having things driven through through his heels. What truly takes an act of faith is not to see the historical facts that there was a Jesus of Nazareth and there were 12 guys that would give their life rather, and and others besides them, rather than deny that they saw him rising from the grave. Even though rising like that defies science, you can make up explanations. What really takes faith is to believe that that is God 
who became a man, suffered in your place and did all of that for the wonderful news that you are now God's son and God's daughter. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To make you righteous, to make you his plunder. He made you a precious jewel. He plundered you from sin, death, and the devil. That means you are now God's child. The empty tomb means you are righteous. Your sins are justified. You are washed clean. You have a new heavens and a new earth. What a beautiful thing that he loved you so much that he actually made you lovable but, and, and that he has embraced you. Here ends our series in Isaiah on the suffering servant. Amen. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.